0: Roger asks the, the question, which is what you said about 2 Samuel 10 as we go into 2 Samuel 11. Um, does anyone else say what you just said? Well, here's how it works. Okay? Here's commentary A. Here's commentary B here's Commentary C, here's Commentary D, here's Article F, and each one will rebut the other at different points. And each one will point out the weaknesses of each other's view, so if you take all the strengths of each one, that's Abner's view. No one wants to come out and say what everyone else is trying to imply for a really simple reason. Because we as believers like to believe that no one is guilty in the Old Testament. That's the presupposition we come with. I I was even talking with Boyd, right? And I told you guys this before when we were dealing with narrative. Boyd even said... I never thought of anyone as evil in the Old Testament except for Joseph. You know, that's because he actually studied the guy a lot and found out that he was a bad guy. We just, like to protect, we just like to protect people in the OT. And we have to be careful. That can come across, or the ripping up of characters in the Old Testament could be arrogant, in the sense of we're better than them. That's not the attitude you need to have. That's not the attitude you need to have. If you have that kind of attitude, that's sin. But the Bible does take an objective and hard look at the characters of the Old Testament. They're not flat, static, flannel graph, nice, smiley people. But if you take that view about them, then you're going to be running over head over heels of trying to vindicate them through all kinds of creative, weird ways which is what everyone's criticizing each other about here. And you will have to carelessly read the narrative and ignore a lot of the points of grammar (coughs) and of literary strategy and crafting to vindicate your view, which is why everyone and their cousin argues about this kind of stuff back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so what I do is I'm just like, well, that's a weak point. Well, let's get rid of that. Oh, well, how do you deal with that? Well, you can't. Okay, so. So then all of a sudden, this becomes the view. And you notice, it fits pretty nicely with the text, doesn't it? It's like right there, you know? Hence, it's a good view. Um, But you have to do a lot of reading and research to get to the bottom of it. Does that make sense to everybody? It's not just like a commentary is gonna be like, well, here it is, wonderful. It doesn't, doesn't work like that, you know? Here's an article in German that talks about the comparison between Bathsheba and Sarah. And you're like, there's a comparison between Bathsheba and Sarah? I didn't totally agree with what the dude was saying in the German article, but he did have a good point. And you know, his point was it's very strange like what Sarah doesn't do and what Bathsheba does do. You know, and he tries to show all these parallels, are antithetical, antithetical parallels rather. It, it it was just it was really well done, but you know I would have probably carried. I mean, he was trying to show the oppression of kingship and all this kind of stuff, and I think there's a lot of truth in what he's saying. But at the same time, uh, there should be some qualifications on what the German guy said. Anyway, if you're interested, I put the German article in your OneNote file <coughs> if you wanted to read it. Um, and there are other things too like commentary you know Kyle and Delich say this somebody else says this and it's funny Kyle and Delich say okay let's say this is Kyle and Delich they say something this commentary says that can't be true and then later it says well we don't know how to account for this Kyle and Delich says I know how to account for this so commentary C says see look at this loser he doesn't know what he's talking about Kyle and Delich are right here for reasons that we don't have any idea about and then commentary D says how is that right you know and and they start to combat each other it's really funny Uh, but when you start to synthesize all of this information together and you remove the presupposition that biblical characters are invulnerable and invincible to sin then you get a very interesting mix okay and ironically today it is such a critical time uh in the book of second samuel and i'm sick and uh like, in Minor Prophets, it just felt like I was, like, going to collapse. But, thank the Lord, I didn't. So, that's good. Uh, <coughs> and in this class, I'm just like, ooh. Yeah, I don't know. If, I've, never, I've never really, uh, I've never ever actually taken illegal drugs. But I'm sure this is what they must feel like all the time. Uh, <laughs> so, boy, I'm going to incriminate myself on this thing. Uh... <laughs> But, uh, so by God's grace, we'll get through this very important section and uh, kind of just try to show you how this all works. So let's begin. Oh, uh uh-huh. Yeah, how often do you come up up with something new? How often do I come up with something new? Well, it's not really new, right? Like, it's actually a bunch of old things that I just, it's kind of like, you know, a collage. Is it really new? No, it's a bunch of magazine clippings, you know, and other things from other places that you put in a new way. That's what I do. I mean, I mean, I guess it's relatively new because no one's ever totally set it all out in one breath. Although, where's Ben Harris? Is he here today? Oh yeah, he probably got what I have. Poor guy. Uh, well, he said, I think Negron, right? Said something like this a while back, so. I mean, it's not crazy to think about, but yeah, you take a bunch of this all together and it becomes quite different, becomes quite interesting. So how often do I come up with something new? It's not necessarily that I come up with something new. Usually it's just that I finish the job. Like everyone else has like kind of set up all these things and I'm just like, well, if that, 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 and that is true, then that has to be true too. And then everyone thinks it's new, but it's really not. It's just like the end progression of what everyone else has done, so. <clears throat> Are you writing commentary? No. Uh, no, I put all my publishing, I was going to write some things, publish some things this year, and then I I decided to put it on all on hold. The process was arduous, and it just really depleted a lot of time. So, when I'm older, you know, that's why I decided if the Lord allows me to write, I'll do it when I'm older. Yeah. Um, when my kids are grown up and gone and stuff. Uh huh. Yeah, please. Oh, it is? Uh, oh, day of prayer is the 9th. So, wait, I'm confused. Oh. Well, day of Prayers. Yeah, it, I guess they did it out of sync this time. Okay, so it's still... Okay. Yeah, it's we still... Don't say we don't have class on November 2nd. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Is that just in honor of the day of elections? <laughs> or is that really... Okay, let's put it this way. If if November 2nd is the day of prayer and we have no class, then of course it's not due that day. Okay. okay? But if, if you know, we re-scrambled our schedule and Day of Prayer is actually on the 9th, even though Day of Elections is on the 2nd, and we still have class on the 2nd because it's not canceled, because you can still go and vote, even if you have class, um, then it's still due on the 2nd. Does that make sense? Thanks for bringing that to my attention. I'll, I'll go sniff out this problem. So, yeah. I don't know. I... I thought I think I I don't know yeah I never noticed that they put it on the same day as elections that that never occurred to me but huh that makes sense okay any other questions for me all right let's pray Lord thank you for weakness and for um, the humility that it brings and for how it cultivates our dependence on you thank you for for sickness and how, that, how you use that in our own lives to bring out our great and desperate need for you. So we ask at this time, as we study the failings of another, uh, may you grant us the strength and the clarity and the humility to understand what you have before us and to understand how great a disaster David has sunk the Davidic covenant into by his actions. And may this not be a triumph, boasting point for us, but rather something we look at and ultimately look to Christ to redeem. So may that be our mentality now. Help us to see through these things and break presuppositions that would block us from understanding what your text has for us. In your name we pray. Amen. In a bit of review, in a bit of review. <clears throat> um. Oh, by the way, just before t- tells you I'm kind of scattered brain more than usual. Yeah, you guys asked me if I want to publish a book or something, and that that's great. I mean, if the Lord allows it, good. And if He allows it earlier than when I'm older, like Dr. Varner's age, uh, great. But um you know, because I mean, when you have younger kids and just family and ministry here and at church and stuff, it, it just becomes quite difficult. But um you know, for you guys, some of you here might want to go into that realm. And that that would be great. You know, you can make a real good contribution and you should consider that. Uh it's just each has their own role in the body, right? And my role right now is not to publish a book as much as it is to help you guys to get where I want you to be. Does that make sense? And if you like to publish a book, it's not like you're in sin or something. It's that, no, you're doing your work. And so maybe, maybe you should publish this, not me. Okay, any case, let's review some things about Second Samuel. And just ignore the plain R, no sources found, whatever on this board, we just have to deal with it, because I can't find the remote control. If you can find it, or if you have really good jumping skills, you can perform any of which right now. Alright, so, couple things in review. 2 Samuel deals with the Davidic covenant. It It deals with the establishing of the Davidic king as the official king, as God's choice, par excellence, with clarity, and that king will receive the promises that encapsulate all promises within biblical history up to this point. That's the nature of the Davidic covenant. It is one covenant to rule them all, and that is not... An exaggeration—that is not hyperbole—and we've seen the evidence of this already in Second Samuel chapter eight. However, the Davidic covenant, even according to the Davidic covenant terms, hinges on one relationship, which is what capital K I N G to what lowercase K I N G. Yeah? Question. Okay. What makes uh, the Davidic covenant so much better than the other ones? The one covenant. Yeah. Because all promises now hinge on the Davidic covenant, and the fulfillment of such <coughs> is the one that produces all the good results of every other covenant. Uh huh. Is that like like what you said all the promises? Is that like Second Corinthians like one twenty like, where all the promises under right? Yes. That's the nature of the new covenant which Paul will expound upon in Second Corinthians. And Paul there is trying to affirm his own truthfulness and transparency of the Corinthians. Like, did I lie to you guys? No. Just like the message we preached to you, you know the fulfillment is going to happen in Christ. Well, then you should know that we are just as reliable as our message. Does that make sense? And our message is about how everything is fulfilled, is summed up in Christ. And so if I could kind of diagram this, everything pre-Davidic covenant is rolled into the Davidic covenant and what is produced from the Davidic covenant, which sometimes fulfills other promises in here, like New Covenant is the key example, stems from the Davidic covenant. Um, Hold on one second and I'll I'll make some pertinent observations. That's why, for example, hey, Minor Prophets people, two passages on the New Covenant, what are they? Jeremiah 31 and? and? Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. Good, good, much better. That response time was a 6 a.m. response time. Yeah. That all stems from, in context, what's the passage, what's the key critical passage of the shepherd and how God fulfills the shepherd motif? Ezekiel 34. I didn't require you guys to memorize that one, so no, no harm there. And then also, Jeremiah 23 through 24. Also has the similar motif of God after he crushes the wicked king, he raises up a new one. And that all starts to switch everything around such that you get to what? Jeremiah 31. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is what leads to a new covenant. For that very reason, it should be no surprise to us when our Lord in in the Last Supper, for lack of a better title says what? This is the blood of the new covenant, right? He's fulfilling the Davidic covenant, which thereby produces the new covenant. This is like, of course, is the way it's supposed to happen because the Old Testament said this is the way it's supposed to happen. So it's just like, okay, well, of course, it should make total sense what's going on there. The fulfillment and the and the culmination of the Davidic covenant naturally produces the effects of the new covenant. Does that make sense to everybody? Uh, much more could be said, uh, for example, like in Hosea, when they return to David, their king, and how that links to the fact that the Holy Spirit is poured upon them in and Joel. And you guys, in minor prophets, remember all these, you know, the diagram I draw on the board about this. That will also be rolled into Zechariah. Uh, you will mourn for the one that you have pierced and got, and through that, the Holy Spirit will be poured upon the people and the forgiveness of sins will be uh, had in Zechariah 12 through 13. All of that shows and illustrates the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant leads to the new covenant. By the way, that's also seen in the connection in the flow of Isaiah 53 all the way through 55. But um, in any case, to go back to the original question, That's why Davidic covenant is the hinge point because the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant causes all the other promises for Israel to be fulfilled. Or you could look at it as from a different vantage point. We talked about this in Minor Prophets today. I think it was today. It's all blurry. But um, yeah, Hosea 11.1. It establishes what? Two words. One starts with a C, the other one starts with an S. Uh, Not sonship. Co anyone remember In minor prophets here let's play hangman yeah good job that was good he didn't even he didn't even need me to finish all the lines that's good corporate solidarity when God sees whoops can't even spell. When God sees Jesus, who does he see? Per the Old Testament, he sees who? Israel. And when he sees Israel, who does he see? Jesus, or the Davidic king, to be more precise. Does that make sense? And so, when the Davidic king succeeds, who also succeeds? Israel. And when the Davidic king fails, who also fails? Israel. And so, if the Davidic king ultimately succeeds according to the terms of the Davidic covenant, who then receives all the fullness of blessings that were promised to them? Israel. Does that make sense? Because they're one and the same. All eggs are in one basket, so to speak. So if you win, you win big. If you lose, you lose big. This is the nature of corporate solidarity. Hence, in the Davidic covenant, God calls the Davidic king his son. And who else only had that title before? Israel, his son. Because they're one and the same. They're the same son. And just now you have a perfect representative to bear what they have borne. You could also put it this way, in, in the nature of corporate solidarity. Jesus become, is, and stands in for, and really assumes the role of the perfect Israelite to take Israel where it can never go because they were never perfect. Does that make sense? It's as if God said this, Israel, you need to be this to gain the blessing. Well, you can't. But I can get you somebody who can get you there. So you just need to trust and link with him. right? This is the way it works for us. Uh, Jerry Bridges one time preached a sermon here (coughs) at the college called Is God a Legalist? And he said, yes, he is. I think I told you this before, right? Maybe, maybe not. Okay, whatever. If, if I have, forgive me. If I haven't, pay attention. So, and his, his answer was this. Is God a legalist? And his answer was, absolutely. Because God demands perfect obedience to the law, doesn't he? Otherwise, you would never be in sin. The difference is this. God provides a way to satisfy that legalism through someone else and not your own merit. That was Jerry Bridges' point, And that is exactly what it was. We are not legalists because we don't depend on our works to get us to heaven. Who do we depend on? The one who was perfect in lieu of us. Does that make sense? That's why this whole system works. That's how the Davidic covenant and its fulfillment works. Israel was never perfect, could never be perfect. It's got a bunch of imperfect people in it. They depend on the one perfect one to give them the perfection they never had so that they could receive the blessings and disseminate the blessings that they were always intended to give. Does that make sense? That's what's going on big picture in addition to you getting saved from your sins, which is really the hinge point, by the way. And that's why it's so important and the gospel is so central to us. Does that make sense? You can't... The danger is you lose the big picture for the small picture, but also vice versa. I mean, you, you got to have everything. That's the best way to do it. Okay. That's the Davidic covenant. It hinges on one person. If you haven't gotten that message loud and clear through this entire disorganized ramble, it is hinged on one person. The obedience of one person. One man with the power of the Davidic covenant can change everything. He can can accomplish the forgiveness of sins. He can provide rest for the entire planet. He can make Israel what it was always supposed to be, disseminate blessing, reverse the curse, everything. He's got it. One man. And as we mentioned before, what was the first thing that 2 Samuel establishes about David? David is the the right man. He doesn't take the law into his own hands. He doesn't usurp the capital K-I-N-G's authority. When the Amalekite comes up to him and says, Hey, you want to be king? Come on, be king. David says, I'm not the king. And I have more reverence for the office than you did. You're going to have to die. Everyone remember this. David, as a person, must be established first and foremost if you're going to prove that this guy is going to be the real king. Well, for that precise reason, chapter 10 and following, you must also prove now that David is the wrong person. Does that make sense? And in chapter 10, we already established David, although before, he enacts chesed, which is what characterizes God, loving kindness. Whoops, that's too many dots. Um, Loving kindness. And he goes proactively for Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Remember that? And even to the point where it's absolutely embarrassing and shameful. He personally interacts. He doesn't send somebody. He goes. He brings him. Does that make sense to everybody? He takes them back. But then, all of a sudden, in chapter 10, we have this kind of curious shift. David's no longer proactive. He starts sending people. And who else is also sending people? The pagan kings. And so David starts to act a lot like the pagan kings and he even doesn't send or he even sends Joab without him into battle. Everyone remember that? And David's supposed to be the one that leads the troops in the battle, but he doesn't go. And remember what happens? Israel is lured into a ambush where they're sandwiched on both sides. Joab must do it must has to do a desperate strategy where he splits up the troops to one side and to another side which You know, if one side collapses, then everyone else is facing the wrong direction and they're going to get slaughtered from behind. And Joab is the one who tries to encourage Israel to have spiritual morale. But what's missing from Joab's motivational speech for the king. king? Because Joab knows something's wrong with David. David's not acting like a king anymore. And so there's this whole problem and if you don't believe that David didn't fail by sending what happens when an even bigger crisis comes who leads the troops David goes and leads the troops and there's a tremendous easy quick definitive victory unlike Joab's near escape type of triumph uh huh Yeah, right? It's like, gotcha. You know, uh, No, it's, it's this. Right man to start the right line. Here's how you trace it. Here's the beginning of Second Samuel. I need to figure out which promises to which person, to which house, to which family to focus on. So the first thing I've got to establish to you is David as a person. Once your eyes are on him, and once your eyes are on his family, then Second Samuel 7 starts to make sense, doesn't it? If you don't believe that David's the right guy for the job, if your eyes are not paying attention to this man, and it's not evidently clear that he's the right one, and his family, and the military, and the political unity that he brings to Israel is the right thing because he's the chosen king, then this never can happen. Then the Davidic covenant can never happen. Does that make sense? But once the Davidic covenant is established, just so that you have no misconceptions, who has to get out? David. Because he's not the right, right man. He's the right man to begin this covenant. He's not the right man to what? Fulfill it. You have to read this linearly, not topically. He's the right one to bring it in. He's not the right one to finish the job. And we should already know this because David's supposed to what in the Davidic covenant? Die. When you die, I will raise up a seed after you. Just to make it evidently clear why the Davidic covenant will always fail, you use the prototypical person, the one who begins it, to set the pace. Does that make sense to everybody? So David's already failing. And what's the question that you have at the end of 2 Samuel 10? Why does David send troops and not go with them? Right? That's the question. Oh, by the way, I think it was... Who was it? Somebody came to my office and asked me, like, how do you devotionally think about 2 Samuel? How do you devotionally think about these really dark passages? Right. Um, Aside from... The common application about pornography and adultery and sexual sin that you have in chapter 11. Um, what you have to realize in 2 Samuel 10 is that you have to kind of hold these dark moments in tension and in antithesis with Christ. You do. Or, from an Old Testament perspective, you have to hold them in antithesis with the hope for a better king. Does that make sense to everybody? David's not the one. This is a dark, terrible failing. But just like, just like, have you ever noticed, okay, out of a trilogy, which is the darkest movie? Number two, right? Isn't it? Why? Ever wonder why? Wonder why? Exactly. If you don't have number, if two, if two ends happy, then who needs what? Three. Duh. You know this is totally marketing. Okay. I mean, okay. No, I mean, almost. All right. But you need something dark so that people want to know this has to get what? Re- this has to get better. We need to resolve this. You sometimes need to plunge your head into the dark times so that you understand the real light, biblically speaking, that Christ brings. Does that make sense to everybody? Sometimes we just think, oh, Christ brings good things, but you don't realize how good it is and how powerful and provocative it is until you've actually understood the contrast. Does that make sense to everybody? Um, This amplifies by antithesis your appreciation for the glory and the purity and the holiness of our Lord okay because David is acting like a pagan king and the key word for this lecture which is now actually officially beginning is discordance and this is a fancy schmancy term for something that doesn't fit right something that doesn't fit right it doesn't fit okay ooh look there's piano I hope this thing works. Okay, so when you're playing piano, right, like, you know, let's see. um. Is that how you want it to end? No, there's something wrong with that, right? That's discordance. Okay? That's discordance. It doesn't fit. You know how it's supposed to go, but it doesn't go the way you think it's supposed to go. There's something weird that happens, all right? See how that works? Uh, it would have been, been even better if you like did something. You know, it's like... You know, like... Yeah. It's like, what? You know, that, I mean, that's, I mean that's, that's the nature of discordance. It, it's, you know where it's supposed to head, but it doesn't go there. And that triggers your attention to say, there's something not right. There's something not right here. Does that make sense to everybody? And you have to look at it. And sometimes it's really subtle. And sometimes things just get hazy and fuzzy, particularly in the Hebrew. And my job today is to bring that out to you. Discordance. Okay? And I have at least, I have around eight discordances in the first five verses that I'm going to point out to you. Eight discordances in five verses. You're like, how is that possible? Oh, it's possible. Uh, there's actually probably more. Uh, actually, I know there's more. But those are just the easy ones. So we're now in 2 Samuel. David has stopped acting like a real king. He sent people out. He's, instead of actually marching with them. And here we go. Verse 1. Then it happened at the turn of the year. Springtime. Probably one year later. One year after the original incident in chapter 10. Okay? Your text says when kings go out to battle. The Hebrew text says when messengers are sent out. Do you start to hear a difference between the two? Do you start to see a problem? Because when messengers are sent out, well, what did David originally do? He sent messengers to the Ammonites. Everyone remember this? So if you took the original Hebrew text The text that we have in the original Hebrew here, the Masoretic text, this would be a year from the time that David originally sent his messengers to the Ammonites. But if you take the English translation, which has support from like the Septuagint and everything like this, then it's the time when what? Kings march. There's a big difference, isn't there? This brings up the first discordance because you see, the word, what's the, anyone know what the word for king is? Melek. Here, I'll spell it in English. M-E-L-E-K, Melek. What's the Hebrew word for messenger? Anyone know? A, uh, what's the Hebrew word for angel? <laughs> the same word, I mean, so maybe it would trigger Malak. The difference is what? One letter, an olive. Do you understand how a scribal error could easily happen from this? Did he say Melachim or did he say Malachim? Did you even hear the difference in how I said it? It's very subtle, isn't it? The first discordance is, and how do we know that some scribes couldn't figure out which way it went? Because you have two major textual traditions. Do you see this? You have two major textual traditions such that, hey, I'm just curious. What did a different translation say? We know what NAS said. Anyone have ESV? It says kings. says kings. So which one is it? Kings or messengers? Kings or messengers? Yeah. There's a problem. Because no matter which route you take, you're going to have to involve both. Okay? easy, Because kings should march out to battle. That's easy. We know that. And when David sent the kings, or sent the messengers, it was David the king sending them. So that's easy. We know that kings have to be involved. And you're saying, what about this messenger business? What about the sending of the messengers? Oh, that will become twisted too. Just give it some time. Right? Just give it some time. But the first discordance is simply this. Kings are messengers. Which one is it? And it raises up an entire problem. David was supposed to not send messengers. He was supposed to what? Go himself. He's the king. Kings should march in battle. He's the king. They don't send messengers. They send themselves. The discordance is there's something that doesn't fit here, right? It should be one way, but it could be another way. Just can't hear it. There is some ambiguity. So is this him looking like the pagan kings sending people in? Yep. And so he sends who? Joab and his servants with him. What's tricky about this? This is discordance number two. <coughs> and his servants with him. What's the nearest antecedent to his servants? What does the his refer to? It it refers to Joab, but what's weird about that? David's the king, right? So you're thinking, ah, I know. Grammatically, it must be David sent Joab and David's servants with him. Him. But the him there should be the same thing as the his and the him with him has to mean what? Joab. Do you start to see a problem? It doesn't fit right. This should read David sent Joab and David's servants with Joab. Does that make sense? But the text seems more inclined to read David sent Joab and Joab's servants with Joab. But what's the problem with that reading? It makes David seem not like a king anymore. It's discordant. You know it should read one way, but it totally looks like it reads another way. Does this make sense to everybody, what discordance is all about? (laughs) It's ambiguity that skews what should be happening. It's the confusion of pronouns. Well, if you read it the way that we want to read it, which is David sends Joab and David's servants with Joab, then David just sounds like he's a king who sends people, and although sending people is a bad move because kings are supposed to fight with the people, at least the text still proclaims that David is the king, yes? But if you read the second way, David sends Joabs and Joab's servants with Joab, then you come to a very big problem, right? because now the military no longer serves David. Who are they serving? Joab. And now Joab has become the king. Does that make sense to everybody? And you're saying, grammatically, which one's likely? Well, grammatically and technically, the Joab reading's likely, but logically and contextually, you want to put what? David there. That's discordance. It doesn't fit. And the text has a bunch of distortion like this. They destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Now, key thing you're going to have to know is that this is all happening during a siege. This is all happening during a siege. That's going to be really important. This is not just some kind of campaign or continual battle. This is a siege. What happens during a siege? Here's the city. Here's the gate, okay? And what happens? Around the city, what do you have? An opposing army, doing what? Waiting, they do nothing. Does that make sense to everybody? With a siege, does that mean that you every day are gonna run up and attack the wall? No, what does it mean? You just sit there, And no one gets in and no one comes out. You starve the city until they what? They give up. That's a siege tactic. Does this make sense to everybody? Sieges are not won by storming the city. Until the city is so weak it cannot what? Defend itself anymore, right? When people are starving to the point and they're exhausted to the point they can't hold a sword anymore, then you just walk in and you take over the city. This is just a big, long waiting game. Does that make sense, to everybody? You have to remember that. This is standard siege tactics of the ancient Near East. And, frankly, anywhere. <clears throat> okay. But what's the key phrase at the end of verse 1? But David, what? Stayed at Jerusalem. So, is it Melech? Melech or Malach? Well, it doesn't matter because the Melech problem is already taken care of. The king problem is already taken care of. David was supposed to go, but he what? Stayed. So the discordance is kind of resolved. It could be Melech. David's already condemned because he's supposed to go, but he stays. This is the whole problem. He stopped acting like king. But what's the question we're asking? Why? Why does David What? Stay. Why does David stay? This is the question that we've been asking ever since chapter 10. Now it was the evening. <clears throat> so it's nighttime. And where is David? Huh? On his bed. And he can't what? Sleep. How do we know he can't sleep? Because he got off his bed. Strange. Strange. And what's weird, right, remember all these commentators are bashing each other at this point. And I remember one time I was sitting in Starbucks and good old Dr. Hutchison's by me and there's a bunch of us around and Dr. Hudson says, I was just reading 2 Samuel 11, you know, in his typical form. And he goes, why is David in his bed? And I said, that is the epic key question. And I just, that's all I said because everyone else had an answer. So the uh, that's this. This is the question. David was thinking about something on his bed. He couldn't sleep. What was it? The text doesn't tell you, but it leaves you guessing, right? What David was doing on his bed. Something doesn't fit. Discordance. And he gets up and he walks on his roof. Now every, not every commentator, but certain commentators will say, well, you see, it was hot in David's room. So because it was hot, he had to get up and walk on the roof, which was cooler in the nighttime. It is true that the rooftop is cooler in the nighttime, but <clears throat> the word here for walk is in the hit pile. In the hit pile. In Hebrew, hitpael means that you pace with the word walk. It doesn't just mean, I walked. It means you walk all over the place. Now, if you just wanted to cool down on the roof, why would you pace? Does that make sense? Like, wouldn't that make you a little bit warmer? (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, I'm really hot, so I'm gonna just run around on my rooftop. (laughs) Okay. He's walking. Around his rooftop, and around his rooftop, and around his rooftop. And what's the next question you got to be asking? Why are you pacing? Why are you pacing? Okay, first you can't sleep, so why can't you sleep? Now you're walking on your rooftop. Why can't? Why are you walking? Right? It could have just been he. If he just wanted to say he walked on his rooftop, they could have just used halak in the call form and that would have been simple and, or if they wanted to show that he rec- cooled off he could have, it could have said he reclined on his rooftop wouldn't that make a lot of sense too? but it doesn't he's pacing on the roof of the king's house what's the irony there? he's the king but he's starting to look not like a king He doesn't deserve this house. And God said, I will build you a house. I think that might be coming to an end. Well, it's not coming to an end, but it's coming to a big temporary cessation. On the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Fascinating wording. How does the ESV translate this? Same Same way. Here's how the Hebrew translates it. Or not translates it. Here's how the Hebrew literally renders it. And he saw a woman bathing from upon the roof. Now, what does that mean? This is the next discordance. You know, technically, this is discordance number five, if, if you really want to know. Um, discordance three is why does David get up from his bed? Discordance four is why does he pace on the roof? Discordance five is uh, why? So, is she bathing on the roof or is he what? Working from the roof. Do you see the difficulty? If you... Here's how it literally works in Hebrew. He looks at a woman bathing from upon the roof. From upon the roof, what does this modify? The bathing or the looking? Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. could be, but you have bathing from upon in Hebrew and other passages too. The all is, our all, or the preposition here is used with bathing as well. And the problem is, while everyone wants to say it's him looking from the roof, grammatically, the more likely rendering is that she's bathing upon the roof. Yeah. Yeah. ask your question a little bit. We put light phrases together, so if, if I wanted to say that she was bathing from the roof, I would put bathing closer to the preposition from upon the roof. Yeah, I mean, well, the way you would figure this out, and the, I have this study in the OneNote file as well, is you look up every single time the verb to see, which is the verb ra'a, occurs with a participle, which is bathing, followed by a preposition. And you see, does a preposition modify the participle or does it modify the looking? Does that make sense? And if you're gonna say, and every single time out of, I don't know, I think it was like 30 something times it happens, the preposition always modifies the participle, always modifies bathing. So this would have to be what? An exception to the rule. The one lone exception to the rule. Does that make sense? But we don't like to read it that way because this makes Bathsheba what? Look bad. Uh huh. We had a chapel message on this maybe a month or two ago, this passage, and the preacher interpreted the passage in the sense that it was tradition for all the women to go and bathe on the roofs at night, and so when David went on the roof at night, he went and noted that. And so he was given the division. Okay. Um, I don't mean to contradict what a chapel speaker would say. I don't mean any disrespect either. But do you know the difficulty of bathing on a roof? Okay. Oh, this actually brings up part of the discordance. So which one is it? Boyd and I had like a three hour long conversation about how to work through this grammatical problem. Because he and I are like, well, you know, I showed him all the stats and everything. He's like, that's pretty convincing. But how do you deal with the article on the word roof? Well, if you look at every single usage of the word roof, it always has an article because it's always part of a house. Hint, hint, hint. Very big deal. Because there are going to be two houses involved in this. We already know one of them. That's David's house. Who's the other house? Bathsheba's house. It'll be very important. You can't miss this. It'll come back to haunt you later. And so Boyd's like, oh, but now Bathsheba looks bad, you know. And I'm like, well, let's tear up the precepts that say that Bathsheba has to look good. But we'll talk about that in a second. The question is, why in the world would she be what? Bathing at all. And what kind of bathing are we talking about? Does that make sense to everybody? Typically, bathing wasn't just done for... Hygiene. It was also done for what? Purification. And in a mikvah. Remember, remember, okay, IBEX students. The classic, classic movie. In remember in the uh, Ophel excavations in the southern Temple Mount excavations. Remember that movie? And then you know, and then he has to go. You know, and then there's that little. That's there's the girl that comes up all the time. Remember that? You guys know what I'm talking about? Tolzman does. Because I made fun of the movie the entire time I was there. So anyway, so it was very memorable for him. Anyway, what does a mikvah usually have to be? Totally by immersion. Your body has to be immersed 100% in the water. That's the nature of rachatz, of bathing. Do you know how hard that would be to have that on your rooftop? It has to be poured water, running water, poured into a very large container, right? Big enough for you to totally immerse your whole body in. Does that make sense to everybody? That's a lot of water to haul up to a rooftop. Not only to haul, because you can't use cistern water because that's not running water. Does that make sense to everybody? Cistern water is water that collects and it's stagnant. Does that make sense? It's not running, and it won't be used for purification. Bath has to be usually flowing water, water that has been moving, uh, or as the Jewish people would put it, living water, streaming water. Yeah. So, so she wouldn't have been bathing. because it's not in a mikveh Well, that's what we're going to have to assume, right? That's discordance. But the only problem is, here, jump down to verse 4. And when she had what? Purified herself. Uh-huh. So she was bathing for mikvah for a kind of purification sense. And so all of a sudden everything starts to go crazy because... One, you don't bathe on rooftops. That would violate every single thing about Jewish sensibilities. Um, you don't have baths on your rooftop. It doesn't make any sense. <coughs> Archaeologically speaking, we know for sure that in the Second Temple period, for sure, bathing was done in very private, restrictive areas. Even the public baths were separated, men and women. They were, they were probably... Um, they had ceilings on top so that you couldn't see, and there was a very... St- definitive entrance where you could go and you couldn't go. And so people could not look in on you. Does that make sense? First temple period, Mikvah Ot, we'd assume were just as equally seclusive because of the sensitivity of the Jewish people of seeing nakedness. Right? That was the whole problem. Jewish sensitivity and cultural sensitivity to the very issue of exposing oneself in public. Remember, where have we seen this before? When David was dancing. He wasn't even naked. But he was wearing not enough clothing for even what Michal thought was appropriate. Remember that? With such sensitivities, there is no way in the world you're going to be bathing on the rooftop. Does that make sense to everybody? That's just not possible, archaeologically speaking. And it's not possible from a pragmatic standpoint because who's going to want to lug... 20 30 40 gallons of water onto a rooftop to make a bath and who's going to want to lug a humongous bathtub onto your not a humongous bathtub but a vat so that you can dip into and totally baptize your body in does that make sense do you see some challenges here in the entire problem does this make sense to everybody Women didn't really bathe on rooftops to the best of our knowledge. It doesn't make any sense. Yes, sir? Well, what was she doing? That's the discordance problem, isn't it? What in the world is this woman doing? <clears throat> One, and here was Boyd's conclusion, I kind of concur with him. We don't know whether he, we know he's looking from upon the rooftop, and even though it seems like she's bathing from upon the rooftop, it's very confusing. That's the point. That's discordance. Somehow he's able to see her, probably because she's on the rooftop, but are we sure about that? I don't know. Yeah. More likely sure. Here's my suggestion. Bathsheba was complicit in the entire affair. It's not emphasized by the text, at least not yet. But why couldn't David Go to sleep. And why was he pacing on his rooftop? Because he knew what? She was there. And he knew what she was doing. But how would he know these things? Because they had, he had what? Too much time on his hand. Well, not just too much time on his hand. How would he know that she was there? because it was a pattern. He had too much time on his hands because he wasn't acting like a king. king. And so he knew what she was doing. And so he sends the army away. Why? So he engaged as a soldier's wife. And she knew it. And she strung him along too. Now, to be fair, at this point, who is doing all the active Verbs, the major active verbs: David, right? David's getting up, David's walking around. David looks. By the way, David does not gaze. he just sees, and it all breaks down. The point of the text is that it just took one look for David to break down. Not because it was a crime of passion, but because what? Everything else had already what. Broken down, he already capitulated by getting off the bed. He already capitulated by walking around on the rooftop and he already capitulated by what? Looking. It's over. Uh, for those of you, I mean, I think somebody mentioned to me like, oh, but what are you going to do, Abner? Now, I mean, this is like the, the ultimate thing about sexual temptation. It's still true. It's still true. It doesn't take much after you've broken your other barriers of resolve to push you over that edge. And David has fallen. And it's because of a history problem, presumably implied, because of discordance of numerous failures that he now enters the state. Was there a question? Yeah. Talking about her being complicit, when it says uh, in verse 3, when the Senate inquired about the woman, if she wasn't complicit, could she have, like, spurned his wife? <coughs> or would, it, would she swear, since he became a she would <coughs> be, you know? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that cuz that's the exact question you need to be asking. All right? That's the exact question you need to be asking. Everything right now is discordant. It's fuzzy. But we'll bring some clarity. Okay? Yes. So if she, um, she did was Unless she constructed a really crazy mikvah. <laughs> but you, you assume short, right? Well, I can't be sure. Because the grammar would say, yes, she was on the roof. But everything in our minds and logic says, no, she couldn't be on the roof. And that's the problem with discordance. You just can't, it's just weird. Meeting, and then it, think she's still yeah, in then how would he see her, right? Yeah, and then how's the right. And that's where I'm saying the ambiguity of the text makes it seem like, one, if she's not on a rooftop, she has to be in an area that is exposed directly to the, to the line of sight of the king, so she still could be guilty. Two, it seems like, grammatically, she is on the rooftop, so now we have a problem. She has, out of her own way, constructed something on a rooftop that would allow her to bathe in line of sight of the king. By the way, for those of you who have not been to Israel, city of David is basically a huge slope. And on the top of the slope is the palace of David. And on the other side of the slope are the houses of individuals that run up. So David's here, line of sight is like this, and Bathsheba could have been right here. Okay, Uh uh-huh. Right. I will explain that when we get there. Yeah. It's a good question. And what is kind of, I think, um, slanting your reading is probably because the text in English says after she purified herself, she went home. Right? I'm going to argue with you that the word after here, uh uh-uh, uh, bad translation. And I, 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 can, I can actually prove that grammatically. hmm. Yeah, he's trying to prove Correct, okay. it's a strategy Because you're supposed to start asking All these questions like What is going on he what Yeah, I think he did He's making you question it So that by questioning You start to answer And see what really happened But he doesn't have to come out graphically And tell you Does that make sense? Oh yeah, I think, I think David. It'll become clear what's going on. Yeah, he'll reveal it in his own nice Samuel-eyed way. Um, so here's David, who might, by the ambiguity of the text, have been having some kind of liaison relationship throughout this entire campaign with Bathsheba. They—he's getting more and more. The discordance is getting higher and higher. And. She's a lovely woman that he sees after every resolve has broken down from him. And so in verse 3, what does he do? He sent. Now things are going downhill. The scent here is another bad scent. And he inquires about the woman. Here's something interesting. Verse 3 says what? That's true. What He's challenged. One of the messengers that he sends, presumably, says what? Isn't this Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam? The wife of Uriah the Hittite? Two things there. Three things, actually. First, let's focus on the micro stuff. Why do you mention the daughter first and then the wife? That's going to come back and get you. Because, mark this lesson well, don't mess with grandpa. Okay? That's just what you need to learn. Daughter of Eliam, just, just write this down. Don't mess with grandpa. Because grandpa will make you wish you never had. But then the wife of Uriah, that's the first thing. This strange greeting, it will come back to bite David. Second, second. Why is this in the... St- The form of a question. Why is this in the form of a question? That's right. And third, why is it one person saying it as opposed to what? A bunch of people saying it. Because this is something what? Uh, Not just secret. That's David. Who is she? You are all servants of the king. So why wouldn't you all... And why wouldn't you question, all question, David? Because your wives would be at stake, yes? So what happens? One brave soul... What? Says something. This is a challenge. You see, we read this as a statement so often. Well, it's Bathsheba. That's what he learns. Uh-uh. That's not what he learns. He learns what? One of his servants says, this is a what? Bad move, David. Is this not Bathsheba? Are you crazy, David? So for that precise reason, verse 4, what happens? By the way, that's discordance number 6. The wording of the text implies... David is being confronted by one of his servants rather than being supported, which means that David is clearly in the wrong. (coughs) David is clearly in the wrong. And, by the way, David already knew her, and not only that, David wasn't inquiring to figure out who she was. David was inquiring to what? Sleep with her. Yes? And the one servant says, you can't this. And he's immediately silenced as David in verse 4 sends out what? Plural messengers. The one is ignored for the many. Question. Okay. Sent messengers and took her. And this gets to the question that was asked well, was she complicit? And how do we know? And what in verse 4 tells us something? She comes to him. And this is the German dude's big point. Right? This is where he, his article shines like big time. Pharaoh takes Sarah into his house. Does that make sense? David doesn't. She comes. Well, you would expect the wording to read like this. Took her into his home and skip over coming to her or when she came to him, he lay with her. Why does the Nasby translate so terrible? Um, Here's how how you would expect it to be translated. David sent messengers and he took her and he slept with her. Does that make sense? That's how you would want it would be very clear. Oh, because David did the initiation here. But this doesn't mean that what? She was unwilling. Exactly. You would, omit, you would omit any implication on Bathsheba if it wasn't her fault, so to speak. But granted, and this brings up an important point, is the text really trying to pin Bathsheba as a loser? What's the text's point? David is the, the loser. But what it has to do is sully up Bathsheba a little bit in her role for this because it shows what? Not that Bathsheba's totally wicked, even though from the history of ancient Israel position, I think she was, but that David had a past with her. Does that make sense? And that David and her had something going far beyond this. That's why. He was a compromised king from the very get-go. Does that make sense? The reason that this is also bad is the camera angle is using the fact that David has had a past history, presumably, with Bathsheba as a disqualification for the king. Does that make sense to everybody? And so, while yes, the text is not emphasizing how bad Bathsheba was to the fullest degree that it could have, it has to imply some of the things so that that evidence is clear. Does that make sense to everybody? So here is David. She comes to him. She knows about this. He lies with her. And this is what's interesting. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, and here's the better translation of this. This should be in parentheses. And here's how it should be translated. She was purifying herself from her uncleanliness. It's a circumstantial clause. Oh, Hold the phone. David sent what? See that? It was the time of the year to send messengers. <clears throat> oh yeah, it was. It was the time of year, not only to send messengers in the past, which kicked off this entire debacle. It was time for David to send messengers to pick up who? Who? Bathsheba. Everything has been turned around. Okay? Here is here is David. He sleeps with Bathsheba and she was purifying herself from her uncleanliness. The participle here emphasizes that this was happening during the entire time that David was watching Bathsheba that he slept with Bathsheba. She had just finished her monthly cycle and was now actually quite fertile. And David should have what? Known better. But he broke due to the pressure of temptation, and he slept with her. And so obviously, the woman what? Conceives. And she sends keyword sends, and tells David, I'm pregnant. Once again, Bathsheba is an equal partner in this whole problem. Yeah. Can you explain that circumstantial clause again? Yeah, sure. In Hebrew, this is called a disjunctive clause. A disjunctive clause tells you the circumstances of what is going on. It's kind of like the important background information or a by the way, BTW kind of deal. And the participle here emphasizes that um, this act was probably occurring throughout the entire time period of what was taking place. And so, remember I said discordance. What is she doing on the rooftop bathing? Is she even on the rooftop? What's she doing bathing? That's now what? Answered. Does that make sense to everybody? That's now answered. She was bathing from her monthly impurity. Hence, we understand now the event. Bathsheba's on the rooftop. It's her time of the month to bathe, not for hygienic purposes, but for ritual purity purposes. David knows that somehow. And how does he know? Take your guess. And it keeps him up at night, so he can't sleep. He walks around on the rooftop because he knows what's happening, but he's trying to resist, and then he looks everything breaks down, and this time the sin gets him. Does that make sense? The sin gets him, because this time she gets what? Pregnant. And we say, is this the only time? I don't know that they were together, but what does the text imply? David, why did you keep what? Sending people away. Why did you keep sending people away? And what does this text answer? Because he was sending messengers to get somebody Else, Does that make sense to everybody? David's a dark fellow. Yes? Why was he sending messengers uh, to get her? Why would he just go himself? You tell me why. I, it seems like he would, I mean, that seems like public. Yeah. So he has to make it as what? What's that? If he went himself, everyone's going to be, What are you doing? Get the messengers at night. They pick up Bathsheba. She comes. Right? No one knows. It's not as public. As if the king himself just walks down the hill and here I am. That's going to be quite a scandal. It's going to be quite a scandal. Okay. We have ten minutes to cover the rest. And... You will start to see everything that happens. Okay? (coughs) Well, at least we can cover this part. So, what does David do? He sends what? He sends to Joab. Another send. Things are just going downhill with this sending business. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sends Uriah to David. Verse 7. What does David ask Uriah about? Say it again. The welfare of everybody. everybody. Give me a military update, which puts Uriah in what kind of position? Not just the messenger. The official military liaison to the king. This is status. Status. This is status. And this is a motif in context which must be established for the rest of the text to be read. Uriah is a mighty man. This looks like to him a what? A promotion. A promotion. And the promotion has a reward, doesn't it? Go down to your house and wash your feet. <coughs> That's a funny phrase. Washing your feet was to get cleaned up so that you can enjoy the accoutrements of home, including sleeping with your wife. David was using this to... David, we know, had sinister motives behind this. But for Uriah, what, is, what, is, what does it look like to Uriah? This is a... A reward. Hence, what does David send with Uriah? A, a what? A present. a present. Like, hey, enjoy. Bed and breakfast. Right? I'll make it good for you. This is like a hotel vacation. You've been promoted. Congratulations. Maybe, you know, one, one commentator said, and, and he was half joking, but I think he, it was pretty good. It's like a lot of wine with, you know, a nice dinner probably but what does Uriah do he sleeps at the door of the king's house with the servants of his lord here's the crazy thing in all of this Uriah is loyal to David he still considers David his master and didn't go down to his house. <clears throat> By the way, at this point, Uriah becomes a what to David? A foil. Uriah and David will be contrasted. Yes? Probably. But they don't know, and they're not gonna tell. But the irony is pretty clear, isn't it? It's pretty dirty. Yeah. so David asks Uriah what have you not come from a journey why didn't you go down to your house the word why here is actually a more intensive word for why than just the normal one lama this is madua why in the whole wide world did you not do this that's kind of the, the nuance <clears throat> David's frustrated because the cover up plan's not working so well But here's where Uriah becomes the perfect foil for David. Verse 11. The Ark of Israel and Israel and Judah are staying in what? Temporary shelters. The theology of Uriah is spot on here. He has an incredible theological understanding something that actually parallels David. Remember, why did, why did the Holy Covenant arise in the first place? David wanted to build God a, a house as opposed to a temporary shelter that, he had originally, or that God originally dwelled in. That kind of righteous passion is in Uriah. He has regard for the state of God and equally he has regard for the state of Israel and Judah. He loves Israel. His people, he loves their God. And not only that, he has tremendous military understanding, something that David was supposed to have, right? My Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord, you, are, in, are camping in the open field. How am I going to enjoy life when everyone else is what? Not enjoying life. Not on your life. Huh? It's hard yeah yeah basically the wording here in the Hebrew is an oath statement I will never do that and who does he swear by not the Lord but by who this is the killer by David because you're my king I never do that to you David do you see the callousness here? Do you see the contrast here? Here is Uriah, so loyal to the king, who believes that the king has just promoted him and therefore he will never do anything to violate the love and the loyalty that David has shown him, when David is just doing what? Covering a sin that he has sinned against Uriah. <clears throat> so then David gets Uriah what? Drunk. And Uriah, drunk, still acts better than David sober. Because here's the, here's the fascinating thing. Go sleep with your wife. David fell to that temptation, yes? Who doesn't? Uriah. Even though Uriah would be fine in doing that. There's no sin in doing that. Does that make sense? David falls into the sin. David sober is worse than Uriah drunk and he the shame gets worse and worse and worse and so we will cover this a little bit more next time but let me just give you a sketch of what happens what David does David sends and we'll talk we'll amplify all these things more next time in the hands of Uriah his own death warrant and says put him in the hardest part of the line what would that look like to Uriah? What, what does Uriah think he's getting? Promotion. Who is Uriah loyal to? The king. And he thinks this is all a test to make sure I was the right man for the job. And so, what, is, what does he do? He charges the wall, which is completely what? Unnecessary. And dies. And probably is screaming to the other men who are running back because Job ordered them back. Cowards, where's your loyalty for the king? That's what happened to Uriah. That's the nature of his murder. Have a good day.